In 2009, a veteran skydiving instructor named Dave Hartsock was performing a tandem jump with a grandmother named Shirley Dysert. And about 13,000 feet in the air, he had a stark realization that his, his parachutes that deployed were not functioning right. And so in, in the heat of the moment, he had to make a rash decision. And as they approached the ground at a drastic rate of speed, he was able to take a couple of the ropes or the, the cords and toggles so that he could thrust himself in a position to hit the ground first before they both landed. And so, Shirley was injured fairly severely, but she made a full recovery, this grandmother. And Dave wasn't so fortunate. You know, by making this sacrifice, he suffered lifelong injuries and was paralyzed from the neck down, which drastically affected his ability to live, as you can imagine, and do simple tasks. And in an interview with Shirley, uh, she was asked about the incident, and then these, these two have chosen to stay in communications after the fact. And with tears in her eyes, she was thinking about the sacrifice that her instructor had made for her, and, and she asked the question, how could somebody have that much love for another person? And in asking Dave Hartsock, would he have made the same heroic choice if he'd have known that it was going to happen to him again? And he said, Absolutely. He said, when people do a tandem, they don't, they don't know about body position. They're just looking for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And Shirley sure didn't know how to do it without hurting herself better me than her. What an amazing story about a selfless act of love that somebody would do for somebody else. And so I had an idea. I thought, what if next year we just, we just select 52 church members and we say, you guys are going to preach a sermon next year. How would you feel about that? Would anybody do that? Would anybody, you would? A couple of you would do that? You, you know, the reason I say that is because I, I think for many people it's very intimidating and it's, the thought of it, it just makes your stomach turn. But teaching is a really impactful thing to do and, and my walk always deepens when, when I have the opportunity to teach a sermon. But I feel like it never, it never gets more impact for me than it does when we talk about love, which um, we are talking about that, and, and last week and this week, and we're, we're studying 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's letter, first letter to the church at Corinth, and it's all about, this passage, 1 through 13, is, is all about love. And um, today's title, Love is Selfless, and that's why I started off with that story. So is anybody in here going through the Enneagram study Raise your hand if you're doing this. Okay, there's, yeah, there's a handful even in this service. Yeah, this Enneagram thing is really fascinating. And I learned a few years ago that I am, my Enneagram number is a number three. But here's what it says about number threes. It says, I'm just telling you what it says. It says we want to be affirmed. We want to distinguish ourselves from others, to have attention, to be admired, and to impress others. That's what, it, that's what it says about me. And so there you go. Now you know the secret to the inner me. And so every time I tell a joke and you don't laugh, you know that you're just ripping my heart right out of my chest. <laughs> that's not true. Well, kind of is, but. That's the funny. Thank you, brother. You're welcome back anytime, bro. He said it was the funniest joke I ever told. Probably. Um, but you know, I... I I hate that description. 
because, as, as you heard, it, it sounds so self-indulgent and so self-serving. It doesn't sound very selfless. And truthfully, I think it's pretty accurate, um, it, which is probably why I've lived most of the latter years of my life trying, trying to, to kind of buck that trend and, and to, to try to deal with that and try to get around it. Because deep down, I, I try to avoid that. But one thing I love, though, check this out, is what it says about a three, a number three, when we're feeling good and accomplished, which is what we like to feel. Here's what it says. Healthy threes know how good it feels to develop themselves and contribute their abilities to the world and also enjoy motivating others to greater personal achievements than they thought they were capable of. That's me. I mean, that's my heart for humanity. Now, most of us, I think, we tend to deflect our sinful nature by saying, well, that's just how God made me. That's just the way I am. You know, we kind of, we have that like Garden of Eden sinful self that the garden side of all of us. But you know what? There's also a redemption side to every one of us. And I know that when I am doing well, when my morale is high, that I am much more impactful and effective in doing the work that God calls me to, both in the church and in a, in a leadership role or in the businesses which God has called me to or the boards that I serve on, I know that when my heart is good, I am effective. But what happens when I'm not feeling good and worthy? Well, what happens when you're not feeling good and worthy? We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but I want you to think on that, okay? Because I think it's a very important part of the conversation today. In the age we're in, if you're like me, it's a very challenging thing to step on the, the, the right side of the line between indulging in what benefits me and participating in the well-being of other people. Maybe, maybe you can relate a little bit to this because um, I think it's in part because of the messages of marketing, okay? The messages of you need this, your life should look this way, you should want these things, and the, the, the basis of comparison maybe, the Joneses, or what we would call the proverbial status quo, that has an impact on us. And even our God-given dispositions, things like drive and tenacity and competitiveness and growth and all of those, sort, those things kind of um, work together to give us this conundrum of, of, of what do I focus on and what's right and what's good and healthy. You know, the, the world has, has taught us to feel ashamed or inferior if we don't achieve the level of success or at least appear to achieve the level of success of other people. <clears throat> and um, I think that pressure over time it just starts to grind and grind away at our heartstrings. And, and those same heartstrings that are being ground down by the status quo and, and the, the, the competitiveness of the world, those same heartstrings are the heartstrings that God uses to show us and tell us that somebody else is hurting too. It's the same heartstrings that cause us to reach out to somebody and say, God loves you and let me show you what love looks like. Because when we do that and somebody has a real connection between what they think might be true or there might be a God or what they think isn't true, there is no God, when there's some kind of a tangible connection between what Christ's love really looks like and the fact that this is a real truth, this God does exist, then people can start to have a semblance of reality, of a real absolute truth in life. And so you couple that with the fact that 
People today, and Kristen kind of mentioned this in announcements, people today, I think, are known more for what they're against than what they're for. We're quick to say that we are opposed to A, B, or C, but we, we're, we're not so quick to say that I believe that, that, that this is good or that this is true. And the aftermath of that is not a warm feeling of inclusion. It's a feeling of disconnect. It's a feeling of not belonging. If you, if, you're, you know, if you don't agree, if you don't see it my way, if we don't stand together and oppose these things, then you're out. You're not in, you're out. I think every one of us has an inner struggle to feel good enough about yourself and about where you are in life that you can actually love selflessly. We learned last week, love is, the extreme is love is, is it, I mean, the extreme is that we are prideful and boastful people, that we are very self-indulgent. The other extreme is, is that, we are, that love is not prideful, it is humble, it is not proud, it is not boastful. It is not so focused on self that it, it eliminates everyone and everything else. There's a really real need in each of us to feel encouraged. I think sometimes you just want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know love is all the same. You want to go where everyone knows your name? I had to do, I had to do that. Does anybody, what's that from? Cheers. I had, to, I had to try that out. But guess what, guys? That, that, that is one reason, because of that need, that's one reason the church exists. Now, I hear from people all the time or often that say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, maybe, that, maybe that's true from a salvation perspective. That, that might be true. You don't need to go to church to be saved. But church is a place where you can be encouraged, where you can be poured into and loved, where you can be taught and filled up, poured into so that you can be pouring yourself out into other people. And so people that, that just disconnect themselves from the church, I think they're, they're missing a huge benefit that God set up and said that the, 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 the church is the the bride of Christ. Why is it so important? Because we all have inner needs that need to be filled and met. Now, I know that in the church there are hurts and unmet expectations, and there are people that have their feathers really, really ruffled, and I, and that, I get that. Church is a messy place, and anybody who thinks otherwise is, you know, I think is missing the mark there, but this is a place that's good for us. Just like the apostles did, they, they got together, they ministered to each other, they shared success stories, and then they went out and did it again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay, that's a biblical model. Perhaps we would all agree, I think, that it's very important when God gives us a command that we are to pay special attention to that. But in the New Testament, there are many exhortations, or, or, what, we, or what I would say an exhortation is a very strong suggestion about how to live. There are many of those. But one scripture is very clear when God gives us the greatest of all commands. And he says, we know what that is, it's to love. Okay, that's the greatest command of all, is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so if that is the greatest command, then there, in, there ought to be a playbook or kind of this game plan about how to execute that. And we're going to see three key aspects to that playbook or that game plan today. And we're going to study 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. And it very simply says, love is not rude, does not demand its own way, and it is not irritable. And another way to say that is that love is not selfish. 
So when we, we define selfish, I, I like to define it this way. Being selfish is demanding our own way. Okay? And on the other hand, the, the antithesis of that is that being selfless is helping others find their way. Okay? So here's that, that balance, that, that challenge of I've got to figure out my way and I've got to, I've got to do what's self-expedient and best for me. And on the other hand, I've got to figure out how do I help others find their way, primarily their way to eternal life? I've been thinking about this word a lot the last three weeks, um, this word selfless. And I, and I keep saying it to myself, and I realize it's kind of a very simple word which defines itself, and that is selfless. Selfless. And I keep saying that to myself, Brian, selfless. And over that, that time period, it's become very evident to me how selfish I am. And, and especially now that I have the accountability of teaching on it. And that's why I asked earlier, what would you do if you were told that you're going to preach a sermon next year? Because the accountability of doing that and standing before your peers with all this junk in here that you know about yourself and standing on a platform and telling other people about this truth and that you ought to live this way, man, it is deeply convicting. The reason that being selfish is not being loving is because when you're selfish, you become bigger and everyone else becomes smaller. Your world, your wants, and your needs become big, and everyone else's wants and needs become smaller. Your family, your church, your community, all shrink when you're so focused inwardly. You forget about those people around you. And every one of those groups of of people or things need you very, very much, and they need your very best. Love in itself can be summarized by not being selfish. I mean, that could be a global way to categorize love. Is, is it, it is selfless. But there's a specific exhortation in this scripture. And the version of the word here in the Greek is the word agape. Many of us are familiar with that word. Agape is a Greek word that means unconditional love. And it's really challenging for us to agape somebody when we're demanding our own way. Okay? They, don't, they don't work in the same vein traditionally. It's really hard to love somebody else unconditionally when I'm just focused on myself. But here's the truth for you. Selflessness isn't giving less effort to loving yourself. It's just giving a little extra effort to loving other people. How do we know that? Well, look back with, with me at Matthew 22. We didn't write it, in, but that's, the great, that's when Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God yourself But then listen to what he said next. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So what what I think he's implying there is there's some kind of harmony between loving yourself and giving the attention that loving yourself needs, and it says, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. So, So somehow there's harmony that we have to wrestle with about how to do those in the right proportion that's healthy for us, healthy for our relationship with God and healthy for the people around us. Because I know that being selfless doesn't require you to stop focusing on yourself and your needs for self-improvement. But I do know that for most of us, it's a lot easier and more natural to focus on us. And it's a lot more difficult to focus on other people. Otherwise, I don't think that there would be these commands and I don't think God would write so much about it in his word. And so, the reality is some of you are actually very, very good at being selfless. And there are extremes. There are instances of both 
of people that are really selfish people and people that are really selfless. One example of the latter is uh, a man that, uh, named Noel that owned a restaurant downtown called Strings. It was, I think it was right on 17th Avenue for 40 years. And I, I think you know, knew Noel, Noel Darcy. So as I, as I understand it, I never met the guy, but Noel was a guy that was very gracious and very generous. And as the host of this prominent restaurant downtown, he was giving of himself over the course of his, his entire life. But he never really learned how to receive it from other people. He never really learned how to be poured into. And, and as I understand it, his life was so grossly out of balance that he ended up taking his own life. And I think for every one of us, there's this, this need for us to accept love and grace from other people and to accept love and grace from God and even accept love and grace from ourselves, because we all need that. We're sometimes our, our own worst critic. But we have, to, we have to figure out where those extremes find harmony. And so we're not to completely ignore ourselves. That's my point there. And so look with me at John 15, 13. And the Apostle John said, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's a very challenging verse because of the, of the nature of what it says. I mean, when you're put into a situation where you have to lay down your life for somebody, what are you going to do? And we know, we know one who did that. But I, I think the way that I interpret this scripture is that the more deeply that love roots itself in your heart and your spirit, the more significantly you will show that love. So, so the greater that God's love and Jesus' love and the loves of other people roots itself within your heart is the magnitude of which you show that love ought to be in equal proportion. And we know that Jesus set the bar so high with this incredible act of love that he did and you and I may never be asked to th throw ourselves to the ground in a free fall accident to save somebody else's life. And you and I most likely are never going to be tethered to a cross, martyred for our faith, most likely. But I think that every one of us could, could work on the amount of time and effort that we are giving to other people that expresses the level of love that, that we have in our hearts thanks to Jesus and his sacrifice for us. So here's, here's kind of a funny story, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. And as I tell it, you're probably going to go, Sump, how is that funny? But here, here's the story. So we have a few automotive repair shops. That's the business that I'm in. And sometimes, as the leader of a company, you are on the low end of the totem pole, so to speak. Okay, so I might go to a store, and they say, Brian, we need you to, we need you to take out the trash. Or, hey, Brian, we need you to go pick up a customer. And I, if, as long as I'm not tied up in something, I'll say absolutely. And so that day, my chore was to go pick up a lady named Catherine. And so I, I showed up, and she got in my car, and she was a very nice lady, and we started talking. And um, so I said, so what do you do, Catherine? And she said, I'm a minister. I was like, oh, awesome. What kind of, we minister, what kind of church? And I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something like a universal church of something or other. And I said, okay. And um, we kind of got into conversation. I told her, well, I'm, I'm an associate pastor, and I'm, I'm very involved in a church, in, a Christian church in Westminster called Novation Church. And she said, oh, great. And, um, and we started, <laughs> you know where that's going. So 
we started to talk about her church, and I said, so are you guys under, a, like, a denomination? And she said, no. I said, oh, okay, well, um, is it just, like, a Bible-based church? And she said, well, we're actually a little different. She said, in our church, you determine your own reality and your own truth. I was like, oh, boy. Um, because, you know, <laughs> that little voice inside is like, you know, it's like, bing, bing, bing. It's like, alarms are going off, and it's like, opportunity knocks. So, um, so as we got into this conversation, I said, well, let me ask you a question. In, in your church, where is sin derived? Like, how do you establish? And she goes, well, you sort of determine, you determine right and wrong. You determine your own moral compass. And I was like, wow. And so I, listen, I, I, I think before God, I can tell you that my heart was, it was soft and I was trying to be gentle and sincere with her. We got into this debate and I said, well, where do you think absolute truth comes from? You know, where do you think the, a human being's moral compass comes from? Do you think that we just, we just evolved and this need for morality just came into existence? You know, and, and she, she started to get very agitated. Yeah, she really did. And I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a fight, you know. And this was probably a 20-minute car ride. And, and by about minute 16, it was so dang awkward that, I mean, like, it was weird. And I was just like, man, it got quiet. And so we pull into the parking lot, and we get out. And I looked down, and she had bright red shoes on. And the only thing I could think to say was, those are really nice shoes. And I felt like it was just a, it was just a knife that, you know, split the air between us. And anyway, so she walks in, and she checks out, and she left. I said, well, Catherine's not coming back anymore. <laughs> but she came back. Believe it or not, she came back and, and saw us again. You know, the, part of this scripture today is that love is not rude. And... The, the dictionary defines the word rude as offensively impolite or ill-mannered. And, and I think that um, there's merit in asking this question. What do good, like what do kindness and good manners look like today? Like how does this apply? I think for, for some of you that are old enough, and if you go back 50 or 70 years, life was a lot different. And common courtesy and the way that humans interacted was just a lot different than it is today. And so, so what do kindness and good manners really look like today? You know, we have to be politically correct on one hand and, and be mindful of hurting the feelings of people. Yet Jesus offended many people. And I'm sure he came across pretty rude as well. What do you mean, Brian? Well, you know, he called the religious leaders of his times to their face a brood of vipers. That wasn't, in that time, wasn't a very nice thing to say. Um, he, he turned over tables in the temple. I mean, he walked into his temple and out of righteous anger, flipping tables over. I mean, can you imagine if somebody comes into a business nowadays and starts, you know, throwing stuff around? <clears throat> he labeled the people that were following him, the people that literally dropped everything to follow him, he told them that they didn't have enough faith. I mean, they literally stopped their lives and followed this guy, and he says, you know, he basically said, why ye a little faith? And how many times did he say that to them? So the, the goal of being, rather the goal of not being rude is, is not, it's not to pacify people. It's not to pacify and please everyone. Because I've learned that no matter which end of the spectrum you land on, whether you're a really assertive person who can probably come across conceited or unkind, or brash, or gregarious, or whatever, or whether you're somebody who is sort of meager, and, and sort of patient, and 
slow to speak and, and maybe meek, because you can be accused of being ineffective and uncaring and slowing other people down. You can, you can have your own root, if you will. But Romans 12.18 is, a, is a, a really key scripture here because Romans 12.18 says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can do to, to live in peace with everyone. Are you, are you working toward living in peace with people? You're going to upset people whether you speak or don't speak, whether you're outgoing or introverted. You're, you're going to upset somebody. So are you working toward peace? Now, because I'm up here today and I, and I have the pulpit, I took a little creative liberty to make my own word up, okay? And, and hope, you, hope you're okay with that. The, the word I made up is the word called rudeless because I figured if selfless is a word, then rudeless or rudeless ought to be a word as well. And you might say rudeless is being kind and good-mannered. Let's just call it that, kind and good-mannered. So what's required for, of us to be kind and good-mannered? Well, I, there's three questions that I think are really helpful to ask. One is, what is the state of your heart? What state is your heart in generally in life? Or when you say something to somebody and they get upset, how do you answer that question? Was my heart in the right place? Was I, was I in the heart of Christ? Was I seeing this person and this person's life through the lens of Christ? The second question is, what are your intentions? When, you, when you're rude to somebody or, or you're perceived as rude, what were your intentions like? Were you being careless or were you intentionally being rude? Like, were you a little bit spiteful? Were you being a little bit egotistical or maybe, in my case, a little bit too cynical that day? Because Lord knows when you have a cynical personality, you, you kind of rub some people the wrong way. And the third question that, that I think is important to ask is, are you respectful and understanding of your audience? What do I mean by that? Well, you know, we've learned in business that sometimes a customer can come in and they just, they just take their problems out on you. And it feels like you did something really, really wrong. But, and, and there are times when that happens. But a lot of the times, if, if, if a person has a chance to vent all of this junk in their lives on you, they're probably going to take it. I mean, it, you've become kind of a psychiatrist of sorts. And this year, probably more than any other year, the burden of the weight of, of all of this stuff, I mean, the sickness and the financial pressures and the loss of jobs and the marriages in crisis and the anxiety, like, these are really real things. And people have very few avenues. I mean, they don't, they don't have clinical psychiatrists, most of them, to go and, and get this out on. So you, people like you and I, just going about our everyday business, bear the brunt of that, that stuff and that junk. Uh, and so are you, when you say something and you're, 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 or your actions appear as rude to somebody, are you being respectful and understanding of their circumstances? Are you trying to relate with tactical empathy with those people? And if you answer these three questions such that you know your heart and your motives and your intentions and your understanding are in a healthy place, then I think you should have peace. And I think that hopefully the people around you will as well. And the second part of this scripture is that love is not irritable. And gosh, guys, this one I, I really struggle with. Um, not just the concept, but just the, the introspect of this one. And we'll define irritable as having or showing a tendency to be easily annoyed or made angry. Easily annoyed, man. 
I feel like I really am. In James 1.20, this is the English Standard uh, Version, it says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you know what the anger of man is? That's like what we'd call unrighteous anger or selfish anger. And, and that kind of anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. If we have given our hearts to Jesus Christ, we have, be, we have been saved, presumably, right? We've committed our lives. And everything after that is, is sanctification. And that, in other words, is becoming more like God, which is kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, we could never fully reach that status, but we're living this life that's becoming more like him. And, and anger and irritability do not produce the righteousness of God. That is not becoming more like God. And over 40, almost 40 years of my life, I have this pattern of being irritable and, and being selfishly angry. And so I spent a lot of time on this one, and, and, I, and I've done the same thing here. I, said, I made up this new word, irritableless. I think it ought to be in the dictionary. And I would define irritableless as being patient and gracious. Okay, that's not on there, but being patient and gracious. And, and I would ask two questions here, and, and I ask myself this question. What are the most common denominators when you are most frustrated or when you get irritated what are the most common things the people or the circumstances around you is it when you're driving yes pretty much every time i'm driving i get, I get irritated and I, I don't know why i don't know if it's because i mean i could be doing something better with my time than me sitting in a car you know i don't know if it's because I like to drive fast, and it's something about feeling claustrophobic when all there's just brake lights in front. I don't know what it is, but I'm working on that, and I know God's working on me, and my wife is so gracious in the passenger seat with me, and I appreciate that, Jill. Thank you. Is it your coworkers? Like, is it the person at your workplace that just sends you up the wall? Is it doing laundry? Because I know some of you, men and women, that do laundry in your house, you're just like, I don't, I could choose anything to do but doing laundry. I get really irritated when I have to do that. When your child is whining, yes and amen. Or your children, all three of them at the same time are whining. Or 12, <laughs> Alicia and Dennis, Joel. Is it when your, your sports team is losing, the Broncos or the Rockies or the Nuggets? If you're from Colorado, you ought to have gotten over that by now. You had a lot of chances. You got a lot of work on that one. Is it when your finances are in the gutter? A lot of us. Many of you know I, I'm, I found this deep passion for bird photography. I have no idea when or how that happened, but I do. And if you're on Facebook, I've, I've shared some of those, and maybe you like them, maybe you, you don't give a rip. But um, when I, uh, there is, a, there is a, an internet forum of very established bird photographers. And once every day, you can, you can put a picture, one of your photographs on there, and you can get critiqued. <laughs> and it's, and I got to tell you, like, I've been around some athletes in my life that have very big egos, but I don't know if it holds a candle to these photographers. Like, artists in general, I mean, are, like, with all due respect, artists in general are, I mean, this is your, your, this is your life's work put into the creating this thing. And so, anyway, and I don't find myself that different. I know I'm not a very competitive person, but man, I sure get, uh, <laughs> But I, uh, I tell you, man, I, it sure rubs me wrong when somebody wants to tell me how bad my bird photo is. Let's just put it that. 
And I get frustrated. And you know, truthfully, and this sounds so, so childish, but like if that happens for like 24 hours, I'm, I'm a little bit grumpy. Like I don't feel very good about myself, number three coming through. Or is it, or is it, um, is it because of margin? Is it because we are always rushed and we're never where we are wanting to be when we're wanting to be? You know, I'm rude and irritable with my wife and my children. I had asked for forgiveness this weekend. It's Friday night. I just had a grumpy night. I just had a flat-out grumpy night. And there's, there's those effects of when I'm not feeling worthy or secure, and that's when I'm most apathetic. And so the second question that I want you to think about is what are you taking for granted? What people or things are you taking for granted? And you go, okay, simple. how does this apply to being irritable? And here's what I want you to think about is if you've ever had... Have you ever had a child that was really sick and you were just praying, God, please just let us, please just heal this child. Please let us get through this. And after God answers that prayer, hopefully he, he, he did in those cases for you, the way that you hug your child, it, it, it's so much deeper and more affectionate and you just kind of don't want to let go. And if you thought about every time that you felt like you were going to lose your child or a family member, it changed I mean, you were a little more gracious after that for a season until that wore off. When you were lonely, do you remember when you were dating and how bad that sucked? Can I say that? I don't miss, I don't miss not being married at all. Like those days were, I hated it. Those days where I'm like, Lord, if you just bring somebody into my life, like I'll never whine again. Well, he, kn- he knew how that was going to end up and he still, and Remember when you couldn't drive anywhere? When you were like 15 or 14 and you just wanted to go and you couldn't get away and man, if I just had a car, now all we do is grumble when we drive, if you're like me. I think it's really important to know, like, is your heart permeable and pliable? Because the world takes its effect on us and it hardens our hearts over time. And in fact, I think that there's a a biblical aspect to that where God says, don't let the world, you know, guard your heart, in other words. And we have to guard our hearts. But if the world is making your heart so callous and so impermeable that, that he can't get in there and work up love for other people, then we've got an issue. And listen, I understand it's not easy to maintain an attitude that is gracious and humble. And it's, it's not easy to reach across and reach out and love somebody that irritates you or that it's rude to you. And it's not easy to stand up for righteousness and distance yourself from people who are sucking your life dry of joy. I know that. And Jesus wasn't that different. If you really look at his life, he chose to, and I think he had to distance himself from certain people in his humanity because they sucked him dry of his joy and hope or they they couldn't receive his truth and his love. And you you might remember somebody like a Supreme Court justice or a famous evangelist or a family member and you might, we might remember them for their legacy but there was one man who made an ultimate sacrifice and his name was Jesus and he laid his life down for you and I. I mean, he gave everything up so that we can have a right relationship with the Father. And we're going to celebrate that today. If you've never committed your life to Christ, it's as easy as just accepting that 
and saying, yes, I do want to follow him every day of my life, and I want to be transformed by him and become more like him. It's very easy. So we're going to have another song of worship, and we're going to prepare to take communion. If you've never given your heart to Christ, it's up to you whether you have. This is just what we do in remembrance of him. So we're going to sing a song and then take communion. So let's, let's do that now. First Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he took bread. We're going to prepare the elements. Go ahead and grab your bread. <clears throat> and on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. It was broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread and remember him. So amazing. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, the new relationship in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's drink together. Jesus, <clears throat> we all need a little help being more selfless. But every one of us also needs to know how much we're loved. And we all have an inner, deep inner need and desire to know that we're accepted and that we belong to a community of believers in an authentic community. And that we're part of the kingdom of heaven and that you are storing a place for us to live for all eternity that is perfect and void of heartache and anguish and rude, rudeness, irritability, and selfishness. We praise you, we proclaim your name above all names, and we desire to be more like you and to know you better deeply and intimately today, Lord. So touch every one of us in a way that gives us harmony in focusing on our own needs and those of others, that it would bring you glory and it would please you, Lord. Bless us as we go this week and have favor upon us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.